Hi, Andrew Talks to Chefs listeners. My new book, The Dish, The Lives and Labor Behind One Plate of Food, is now on sale. Publishers Weekly calls it masterful, and Kirkus Reviews calls it, quote, an entertaining, eye-opening investigation. Follow the link in the episode description for today's show at andrewtalkstochefs.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love if you followed us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. And if you'd like to rate or review us and help new listeners find the pod, the best place for that is Apple Podcast. Thank you very much. Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. Enjoy the show. The following episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by Mies, the recipe operating system for culinary professionals. From chefs to mixologists, if you manage recipes for professional kitchens, Mies was built to make your pro kitchen life easier. Store and organize your recipes with the most advanced recipe scaling technology on the planet. Get started by visiting getmees.com forward slash Andrew. That's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash Andrew. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. I love the way risotto can become this creamy like suspension of perfectly cooked grains without any additional material other than the technique and the narrative, so to speak, that you put it through. Uh, You're dealing with like some really elemental ingredients, stock, rice, wine, butter. Similarly, a really beautiful sentence can be made of very simple ingredients just ordered in the right way. And like sometimes when uh, a sentence is beautiful, I'm just in shock by how simple it is. That is the voice of Jason Hamill, chef and owner of Lula Cafe in Chicago, Illinois, and author of the new Lula Cafe cookbook. Jason is our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. Our guest today is Jason Hamill. Jason is the chef and owner of Lula Cafe in Chicago, Illinois, and author of the recently published Lula Cafe cookbook. I think, I probably shouldn't say things like this, but I think this interview may end up in a category of being one of our classic interviews here on the show. It has a lot of things that I think 
long-term listeners really respond to. I'll say more about all of that when I tee it up in just a moment. Before doing that, there are a few things I wanted to share and convey to all of you. First of all, I wanna wish you happy holidays. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. I know it's the busiest season for many of our listeners as you're working in restaurants. I do hope you're finding a little bit of that elusive work-life balance that you're all supposed to be having now in these evolved times. I hope that applies during the holidays. I have my doubts. I have my doubts, uh, but I do hope you're getting to spend some time with your friends and or your family and loved ones, and I hope you were able to at least find a few hours to do that at some point last Thursday on Thanksgiving Day if you are here in the United States or if you are perhaps an American celebrating the holiday elsewhere on planet Earth. Next, as all of you know, but I have to do this in each episode for the rest of the year, my book, The Dish, The Lives and Labor Behind One Plate of Food is now on sale. I am very proud of this book. I think it is easily the best work I've ever done on the page. It tells the story of the key people whose lives and work come together in one restaurant dish, both in the restaurant and beyond, in the farms, on the highways, and so on. I really think if you are in the industry, you will relate to much of it. If you are interested in the industry and reading books about chefs and the culinary industry, I think it's a little bit different from anything you've probably read before. And I want to make a special mention that if you are a young person out there or someone unhappy in their current career and you're thinking about switching into the culinary arts, I think it'll give you a pretty good sense of what a day and a service are like in a restaurant. Um, I'd also humbly suggest that if you are a restaurant owner or a chef and you're looking for something that you could give to everyone on your team, you could do worse than sharing this book with them. Uh, I'll leave it there, but if you'd like to learn more, you can purchase the dish via the link in the episode description for today's show at andrewtalkstochefs.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. On a very different note, I heard some terrible news the other day. Many of you probably saw it on social media as well about a fire that essentially destroyed Horn Barbecue in Oakland, California. I don't know the Horn team myself, but a number of good and trusted friends of mine have sent out the call on behalf of these folks. So I am sharing it here. Uh, I took a look at their GoFundMe just about an hour or two before recording this intro. They are well short of the substantial funds they are hoping to raise to get back on their feet, to get their place uh, rebuilt and reopened. So if you are interested and possibly able to contribute to that GoFundMe, please visit the link also in the episode page for today's show. I also need to just quickly thank a few listeners who turned out in New York recently at a book signing at P&T Knitwear in Lower Manhattan. Annie, Ryan, Jenny, who also, I have to say, posted something very flattering about the pod a couple of days after that event. And Chase, who's uh, someone who listens to the show, uh, has turned out for more than one event at this point, uh, always makes a point of saying hello. I'm always happy to see him. Uh, thank you all and anyone else 
who may have turned up uh, to visit. As for my Dining Out Chronicles, it's a little bit limited the last few weeks because of the holiday. I spent a lot of time at home this weekend and with family, uh, but I did in the context of an event for San Pellegrino and also uh, a book event for The Dish, I finally, for the first time in my life, got to Houston, Texas, where I got to try my friend Aaron Bluthorn's restaurants there, Bluthorn and Navy Blue. Uh, both were outstanding. I have to thank Aaron, Sharif, and the entire, Sharif, by the way, is Aaron's business partner, uh, and the entire teams of those restaurants for giving me such a warm welcome. Uh, I had a great first visit uh, to Houston. And to my buddy, Bao, if you're listening to this show, I'm glad we got it uh, able, we were able to squeeze in a tennis hit on my one and only morning in that city. I also uh, was very happy to be in Chicago uh, later in that same week to attend the anniversary celebrations for my friends at Boca Restaurant, which recently turned 20 and Virtue Restaurant, which recently turned five years old. Congratulations to all of you. Many of the people involved with those restaurants have been on the show. Uh, Kevin Bame, Eric Williams, Damar Brown. Uh, many of you know that those names are affiliated with those particular restaurants. Um, and both of those events were really special. I was really glad um, that I was able to find the time and the resources to get myself there. Um, something I haven't always been able to do for friends in my life, but um, I'm glad um, I was able to make that happen at this time. So before we get to our feature interview, I want to ask you, as I do here from time to time, have you all checked out Mies yet? And if not, I say it again, what in the world are you waiting for? Give yourself a holiday present and check out Mies. It will make your life Easier. Mies, of course, as many of you know by now, is the recipe operating system for culinary professionals. What that means is that it is a virtual place for you to house all of your recipes, share them with your team, along with instructional photos and videos, if you like, as well as scale them and derive whatever information you need from them. Food costs, allergen data, yield loss, unit conversions, and nutritional breakdowns. If you are a chef, line cook, mixologist, operator, or in any way manage recipes for professional kitchens, Mies was created just for you by former chef and restaurateur, Josh Sharkey. Josh, as I've mentioned on the show before, this sounds tacky. It sounds like something the late Sammy Davis Jr. might have said, but Josh is a close personal friend of mine, and that to me means something. He uh, designed this thing with his team with incredible integrity. And I think it's something I've demoed it myself. Uh, and as much as a non-professional like me can say, I really believe it is something uh, that any professional listening to this podcast could benefit from. And the basic version of Mies is free for the entire culinary industry. Store and organize your recipes with the most advanced recipe scaling technology on the planet. And if you upgrade to premium, Mies can make your entire business more efficient and centralized by helping you train and onboard team members, manage production, and even process invoices. And as a listener to this podcast, receive 25 free recipe uploads and breakdowns on your new Mies account 
by signing up today. Learn more at GetMeez, that's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash Andrew. Go there on your own or simply click through via the link on the episode description for today's show. So as I said earlier, our our guest today is Jason Hamill. Jason is the chef and owner of Lula Cafe in Chicago, Illinois, and author of the recently released Lula Cafe cookbook, which I cannot say enough good things about. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's that rare chef cookbook that was actually written by the chef. Uh, It was lovingly written, tested, and produced, and it has all the secrets to recipes that have made Lula one of Chicago's most beloved and enduring restaurants. More than 20 years into its run, people still line up for brunch there every Saturday and Sunday. I've seen it with my own eyes as recently as three weeks ago when I was in town uh, for the uh, book launch of The Dish. Uh, it's, It's really amazing how they've kept up the quality there and the vibe there. And uh, Jason tells us all about how it came to be, why he is such a gifted writer for someone who doesn't do it professionally, and a lot of other interesting things about his background. As I say, I think longtime listeners are going to love this. I do want to share a quick funny story. It doesn't come up in the interview, but I interviewed Jason for a print profile. I wrote a profile of him for Plate Magazine several years ago. Uh, but we had never met. I really enjoyed the interview and had wanted to get it on my show since then, uh, but we had never managed to meet. Um, And I was at dinner about 18 months ago, maybe 20 months ago in Chicago at Lula with uh, mutual friends of Jason and mine, uh, my friend Chandra Ram, who's been on the show and actually will be on the show again very soon, uh, and her husband Jay Wilder. And when Jason came out to say hi to them, we were introduced. He did not know that I was the third person on the reservation. And it turned out that he's a devoted listener of the show. So hi, Jason, if you're listening. Um, But that made me feel very good because I have a tremendous amount of respect uh, for Jason and how he conducts his business. Um, And we've become, I think I can safely say, we have become or are becoming friends Um, And as you can tell by the existence of this episode, we finally got the interview in. We interviewed back in May when he was visiting New York City, but I have sat on this interview until now, obviously, so that it could serve as a primer on his book, which I would like all of you out there to check out. And if you're so inclined and able to pick up a copy of, there is a link to where you can buy it in the episode page for today's show. And I'm really excited for all of you to hear it. So I'm going to get to it in just a moment. But first, I just need to mention that, as always, our feature interview here is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants. And right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs, the perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sampellegrino.com. And with that, here is my conversation with Jason Hamill. Here you go. Okay, so Jason, welcome. Uh, 
Uh, we're sitting here in my apartment. It's a, it's, this will air in the fall, but we are sitting here in the spring. On a lovely day with the windows open. And I have the window open for any, if you hear background noise, that's because... Kids getting out of school for recess. Yeah. All that. Yeah. Uh, we'll probably hear some people have a fight before yeah. we're done here. We are in downtown Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, I feel like we've been trying to make this interview happen or talking about it for a couple for, of years. For a couple right? of years. Yeah. So the occasion of this, and the reason I, it will not air until the fall, is the Lula Cafe cookbook. Before we get into your whole backstory and all that stuff, why don't you just tell people, I mean, it's a fairly straightforward cookbook, uh, but why don't you tell people, I mean, this is a restaurant that's been around almost a quarter century now. Why now, why you wanted to do a cookbook and what you want people to take from this book? Well, one of the reasons why it's taken us so many years to sit down at this table is it took me several years to actually get to the place of writing a cookbook that I had always wanted to do. And it wasn't necessarily that I always wanted to do a cookbook. I always just wanted to do a book. I wanted to write about my life and the work that we do and the people that are involved with uh, the restaurant and the community, both from the artists and the, the makers and doers, et cetera, that have been so like central to my life as a, as a chef there in Chicago. But also it took me a lot of time to get to the point where I was ready, but also it took life pausing in the pandemic to really give myself the time to say, okay, I'm going to start on this project and really, and really dig in. Cause I, I mean, I did write the book and uh, I was very serious and, and intentional about like what I was saying in even the briefest moments. I I've always wanted to, to write about food since I discovered it. And that was only in my uh, sort of like, you know, adult life my po my 30s really before that i always wanted just to write and ex you know uh, express myself through language so these sort of these things my world my world is you know a chef world and my uh my desire to express myself in, in words and language kind of like came together in this moment that was you know after you know 2020 so it wasn't until 2020 that i was really able to like have the the space to do it the time the, the bandwidth time, the space, yeah. yeah and also you know you need a place of reflect from which to reflect you know um a, and a moment in your in your life where um you think the perspective matters and i felt like that at that at that time you know everything that i knew in my day-to-day -day life had just sort of like you know had left me and i was like you know in the restaurant with a group of two or three, you know, maybe actually five or six of my managers who were there to like, you know, uh, make sure that the thing didn't collapse completely. But we're, you know, there in piles of to-go boxes, you know, making food for people that you can only see through a window. And it was during that time that I, you know, I felt really shattered. I mean, my, you know, my, my life had completely changed as, you know, so many of ours had, but my work life was threatened. And it was from that place that I wrote the book, you know, it was from the place of wanting to, to look back and save something, both from a memory standpoint, but also just from, you know, like a place of like what mattered to me. And it, it was, you know, it was like, obviously for so many people, it was a crazy time. I, I lived with my father-in-law for, for several years before that. And then he passed away during the pandemic in my house. There's a lot of like really um, significant moments that happened during that time that while I was working on this book and, uh, you know, my kids got older, they ceased being children and the employees that I had at the restaurant, um, that, that whole thing changed and we op reopened, uh, you know, a year after closing in a completely changed world. That was the perspective 
from which I wrote the book. It is interesting. You're, you're not the first chef I've met who that was the case. Um, actually, somebody, not in personality at all, but somebody who kind of your restaurant reminds me a little bit of in certain respects, but Peter Hoffman, who had Savoy mm -hmm. in New York City. There's some similarities between Lula and Savoy. Um, you know, they did these like artist salon mm -hmm. events and... Peter had a very deep relationship with the, you know, the farmers at the farmers market here. But he wrote his memoir basically um, during COVID. Yeah, we had we actually had him at Lula oh. um, to do a little sort of talk between me and Peter. And uh, I, you know, thank you for saying that. Savoy was a, a one of my favorite restaurants. To oh, come okay, to in New good. York, and I okay. love it. I do feel kindred, like, you know, that we're kindred spirits. I would imagine so. Yeah. I would imagine so. I want to move around a little bit as we talk in a, in a nonlinear way. Sounds good. Um, but, you know, I, I'd like to kind of first set up Lula Cafe, mm -hmm. you know, what it is. And I, I find it to be in some ways um, because Chicago is such a big city and is such an important food city. I, I'm sort of fascinated by this place that Lula Cafe holds and i hope this comes across as the compliment i mean it as it is so beloved in chicago i mean it's really an institution in chicago it's so well known in chicago it still get gets put on you know it'll show up on the eater hit list and stuff like this which is remarkable for a restaurant that's been around as long as it has it's still very busy i ate there uh, you were there. I ate there with Chandra Ram, uh, our mutual friend, uh, maybe a year and a half ago. Really thriving, great energy. It is not, and this is the part I hope you don't take the wrong way, but it is not nationally, it, it doesn't have that as big a footprint. My assumption has always been that you're someone who just doesn't chase publicity very aggressively, that you're kind of happy doing what you do and with the success you guys enjoy. Is that an accurate, first of all, do you agree with the way I'm describing uh, the restaurant and its place in Chicago? And secondly, do you not pursue uh, things that a lot of people kind of spend a good portion of their waking hours doing in your industry? I, I think I might pursue more than you than you imagine or, or at least desire more than you imagine. I think one of the, the factors in the way, I mean, I think you describe what Lula is to Chicago and nationally accurately. I think one of the things that factors into a um, sort of a, maybe a lack of national recognition is just the the sort of place it is in economically. I mean, it's a casual restaurant. We're open for breakfast, for lunch. We're open six days a week. It doesn't it doesn't have like um, it's not super fancy. I guess is uh, what I'd say. Um, and you know, national restaurants are either. Um, you know, we just don't fall in that sort of category of the ones that are recognized typically. That said, um, in our own city, we didn't get a review in a newspaper for 17 years. What? Yeah. The That's Chicago crazy. Tribune, the first like starred review of Lula Cafe, we were 17 years old. So we were very much under the radar. And you, when we opened in 1999, it, it was a quiet opening, and yet we were very busy. Like there was, no one was writing about a restaurant in, um, you know, in our neighborhood. We were in a neighborhood that's, you know, takes 15 or 20 minutes to get to from downtown, and you know, a res mostly a residential neighborhood. Um, 
and people were just not it you know food wasn't the sport it is now it didn't have the same cultural currency that restaurants and food and it has in media uh today that we're very you know accustomed to from lists and awards and television it just wasn't you know it wasn't like that in the 90s as you know um, especially in Chicago. Um, and so, you know, we were just under the radar for a very long time. And in fact, we were in a piece in the New York Times in um, 2001, um, which is what really sort of started uh, any kind of um, external, like no, people knowing of us uh, outside of our neighborhood, uh, in which we were listed uh, along with, you know, some of the fine dining establishments of Chicago that were doing, you know, um, New American meets farm to table, you know, creative takes on Midwest seasonal, uh, seasonal food. And the, the New York Times writer pointed to, uh, you know, our brunch as like a, you know, a thriving example of, of, that, um, of that food scene. And that really changed everything for us because, um, you know, we, we did not accept reservations. We really didn't, you know, we didn't even know how, like, we, you know, there was barely a phone, you know, it was just a very uh, low key Establishment. All of a sudden, people were calling us, asking us how to get there, uh, and that was from a New York Times piece. That I mean, in Chicago media, was it? You know, it was uh, our equivalent of the Village Voice, the Chicago Reader. You know, would would write about us, but not national. You know, national press. And let's just give people a sense of the restaurant. Sure. So it's it's a casual restaurant, as you say. I mean, your relationships with the farmers of the area are deep enough that you all. Uh, do these Monday night farm dinners. Mm-hmm. Um, no, there's no rep, there's no repeating of dishes. Correct. After no, all well, these years, yeah, that's we every week. It's a unique we do new, new things every, every week. Yep. I mean the, the restaurant started, um, as a cafe, like a cop nineties coffee shop. And it was actually a coffee shop that, uh, before we owned it. Um, it was, um, the first place I went to when I moved to Chicago. Um, I'm from New Haven, Connecticut, not far from here. Um, and I came to Chicago and went to this coffee shop because I was hoping to be a writer and writers hang out in coffee shops. And, um, this one was recommended to me as being like one of the best. Um, and it was, you know, a true bohemian nineties coffee shop with a bookshelf and a piano and like, you know, loud music and posters all over the walls, like, you know, advertising shows and, you know, art for sale or, you know, missed, you know, connections, et cetera. You know, the era of the, uh, of the posters before, you know, we had, uh, Craigslist and then, you know, social media. And that was like my, my home base for several years as I was trying to be a writer. And my wife and I took that space over and created Lula as a way of sort of protecting the space. It was a community artist centered, um, hangout. And that's what we wanted to preserve. The food kind of came secondary. I mean, I know I'm getting into the like backstory now, but like it's a cafe at its heart. So, um, as we grew and expanded, so did the footprint. So today it's, uh, it goes over three storefronts. We started extremely small. Um, but you still get the sense of being like a, um, the cafe that's sort of grown into the environment which it habits, like, I don't know, like a plant growing through the sidewalk. It just like sort of took over that space uh, in a really natural way. And the space itself, when, you, uh, when you're in there, I, f- I feel very, the many people feel the sort of like 
comfort of uh, of a well-worn uh, you know environment. And so when you you know I'm just describing what it what it means to people. It's a it's a home base to so many folks who have uh, who have come through that neighborhood and who. Uh, who love, you know, art and music and and uh, and food in the way that and we the way that we do, and who want um, a really sort of casual, comfortable environment. That said, we also are pretty serious about the food that we do, and we are very committed to the um, the farms that we work with. And we um, we got really creative and excited about cooking over the years. Like you said, you, and you do these you do these Monday farm mm-hmm. dinners. And you just alluded to it. Brunch at Lula is an institution unto it itself. Is. We still um, have lines every Saturday and Sunday, which yeah. is after 24 years. Yeah. It's a big deal. So within this institution, there are these kind of traditions um, that, that continue on. We first spoke several years ago. I interviewed you to write a, a profile about you mm-hmm. uh, over the phone. Yep. It was a couple of years after that that we finally met. You know, reading through the cookbook because there, and we're going to rewind and get to all of this, you know, but you did, as you said, start out wanting to be a writer. Well, even that piece of it, the fact that you started off wanting to be a writer, the fact that you discovered this magical kind of space, you know, that you wanted to preserve and, and you switch gears and go into doing what you do. The name of the restaurant, as you named it, the farm relationships, the simplicity but with uh integrity of the food these are all things to me that give me this impression almost of lula cafe as and and maybe even you as as an accidental chef as almost like a a, you know like what's the the phrase in slaughterhouse five unstuck in time (laughs) like i feel like this is a restaurant the whole story, everything I just said, this was 1999, right? That's a f- almost 30 years after Chez Panisse, right? But I feel like your restaurant in a lot of ways shares a lot of backstory and sensibility with a lot of restaurants of that era. Of the, like, of the 60s, 70s era. Yeah. yeah I, I completely do, you, do you relate to oh, those? You do mention so. Alice by name in the book, yeah. but I mean, you know, I wrote a book about that era. Mm-hmm. I'm like, just this this whole story would have fit right into the first it chapter would. of that book. It would. And as we are, you know, getting older and the 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 musicians and the filmmakers and the writers that I knew when my when I moved to Chicago and was, you know, 25, 27, I mean, now we're, you know, much older and we're still doing the work that we're doing. So the the reflection back is really what the book is about, but it's it's not just about nostalgia. It's about preserving the spirit of uh, a creative life. And one of the things that allowed us to be successful is really not knowing what we were what we were doing. I mean, I have no re- you know no resume, no experience doing the things that I'm doing. And now, well, you say in the book because we didn't know what we were doing, we didn't have any barriers, no barriers, yeah. no rules yeah. to follow, yeah. and and messing up was like not really. Um, a problem because we didn't even recognize the failures as failures sometimes. Um, it's kind of a dinner party mindset. It, it, and it was respects. that way. Yeah. yeah. And it, it absolutely felt that way for many years at Lula. You know, now sometimes I'm like, oh, I wish I had this institutional knowledge. I wish I worked at, you know, Danielle for five years before. Like, if I could have that right now, I think I'd be a, a much better chef. In some respects, that may be very true. Um, I might be have learned things the hard way, and and maybe efficiencies, et cetera, like that would have helped actually running a successful business, you know, you know a profitable business, one that was you know financially. Maybe that would have helped me. But really, it, you know, the not knowing is what the spirit of Lula is about. It's about being 
27, I was 27 when the restaurant opened. And, you know, we had no money and no real connections. And we just did the thing that we wanted to do because it, we were passionate about working together, about, you know, continuing the space and, and providing a space for the community. And I look at some of the, the things that are happening, like, you know, on the street now with pop-ups and the really exciting explosion of creative energy around food that came out of the pandemic. And I feel really a, a deep kinship to this time now with the time that I felt in 98, 99. The story is that, you know, the, there was this coffee shop that my, um, my wife worked at and I was a regular at. When the coffee shop started to, you know, kind of slow down, fell in hard times or whatever, we actually were allowed to go there and make soup. Then we, we had this idea. We were actually at a, a bar at a, at a rock show and we bumped into each other and we were talking, um, we weren't romantically involved at the time. And, you know, I always loved my wife's soups. You know, she cooked soup at this cafe. She'd make this like sweet and sour cabbage soup. She'd made, she'd made them brilliant soups. And I was like, well, what are you up to these days? And, you know, she was working as a bartender. And, um, you know, I was working as a cook at a restaurant. We, we just decided to start making soup and driving it around to cafes and selling it, which was the way that, you know, Lula kind of started. We, we were able to use this cafe space. They were kind and generous and allowed us to, like, come in there and cook soup. Um, we paid them in soup. And then when that cafe closed, we took it over and, and created Lula. But when us driving around town in our, you know, in the car with buckets of soup, going to cafes without kitchens and trying to sell, you know, DIY, like under the table, unlicensed, you know, just like the way that, um, you know, so much of the, um, the economy was in 2020 and 2021, which was also super exciting to see all these, you know, projects happen. And that is where the energy is now in, in, and, you know, in the culinary world. Um, and so I feel like a deep kinship to that time, you know, being 27, not caring, trying out, if you fail, you try something different, let's just do it, let's get our friends together and create something. Mm -hmm. And that spirit is like what I wanna preserve in my own life. You know, I wanna be that person who's like, you know, still has that energy, that creative spirit, um, even now as a much older person. You know, it's funny you mentioned, you know, all this creativity that happened kind of after the pandemic. I, I believe, and I really, I don't wanna get into specifics because um, I'm, I try not to do it anymore because a lot of listeners didn't like it, political stuff. But let's just say that we're, we live in very politically tumultuous times, right? The last almost decade now in the United States. I feel like that was also a trigger for enormous creativity in that time we were talking about a minute ago. I, I don't think it was just the pandemic. I think it was the fact that there's tremendous uh, tension in the country um, and there's violence and um, those were things that have always produced, for whatever reason, uh, this kind of, I can't put words to it. And, uh, and hopelessness, right? Yeah. I, mean, I, I, have, yeah. I have children. They're, you know, I have a 16-year-old and a 12-year-old. Looking at you know, any kind of, you know, uh, large, take a step back and look at any kind of news day in America, and for them, um, I mean, it could be really heartbreaking. And so I'm thinking about all the young people that are, you know, still, you know, connected to the Lula community, you know, all the, the young employees and the things that they're looking at as their future and seeing the, you know, the earth burning and the, you know, the political tensions and, you know, the, the rise of, um, of all sorts of really difficult things to think about in terms of like, what's, what's coming for me. So these, these 
pop-ups, these new small restaurants, this like response to this community care and mutual aid. These are like expressions of hope that are profoundly brave in my, and the way I see it. Um, and also something that I, that I feel like a lot of um, connection to seeing that and seeing what, you know, despite that, you know, um, you know, the world is burning and ending and it seems horrible that, that people will still express themselves through food in this really, you know, passionate, exciting, you know, new way is an expression of hope that cannot be denied. And like, that's, that's how I kind of felt about what we did when we were, you know, uh, young and, and, you know, newly, uh, in charge of this space in Logan Square. I want to go way back go and back. Uh, talk about, you know, get your whole story. Uh, before we do the, the name, Lula Cafe, I did not know this until I was reading the book. The name comes from the name of an actress. A lot of listeners won't know this name, but Tallulah Bankhead. Correct. Uh, your wife was in a band? Called Tallulah. Called Tallulah, after mm-hmm. Tallulah Bankhead. Yeah. If you don't know who Tallulah Bankhead is, I would recommend that you watch Lifeboat, Lifeboat, right? Yes. Which is an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Yes. Um, that's that's where I knew first knew Same. of her. I have to ask you at the end of the paragraph. I, I don't know why. I don't normally have a photographic memory, but you talk about how you like the kind of the cadence of the name. And you yeah. say how it kind of rolls off the tongue. Yeah. I. This is real. This we're two English majors. Are we going to talk about Lolita right now? I thought that sentence was kind of a a sly riff on the way uh, the 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 Humbert Humbert says Lolita Lolita. trippingly off the tongue. The triptych. Yeah. Yeah. That was deliberate. It's deliberate. Oh, good. Okay. Absolutely. Well, aren't we brainiacs here? There we go. (laughs) Two English majors just over a couple of mics. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad. I'm glad I asked because I was like, is it me or is that a little not? It, it was a nod. Okay. It was a nod. Let's Thanks get back for to recognizing stuff. that. <laughs> I feel it's completely seen. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of the reason I was like, I have to ask him about that is I wanted to, um, I wanted to make sure you knew at least one person got it. <laughs> I feel extremely seen. Thank yes, you very I, much. Yeah. So let's roll back as we do here. Uh, just, you know, it can be in, in broad strokes. Um, although I know that's hard for someone who's, you know, uh, genetically, uh, metabolically a writer. Just give us a sense of where you grew up and kind of what the circumstances were, mm-hmm. family uh, component, and how and if at all food factored into that. I'm from New Haven, Connecticut. I'm from an Italian family. I know I have the last name Hamill and the first name Jason. I read about those names in the book. Uh, my grandfather, um, uh, who only passed away a few years ago at 103, his name was Luigi Andrioli. Um, so uh, you can hear that is in you know a Southern Italian name. The three of my four grandparents are of Neapolitan descent. I grew up in a a family. Um, my parents were teachers, both my mom and my stepfather are teachers. Um, my natural father um, was a teacher, um, but he was also uh, a very charismatic man. He. Uh, can tell stories about him all day long but uh he was you know uh could have been a character out of the sopranos my dad we grew up um very much in i grew up down the street from my grandmother my aunt lived the other uh you know block away on the other side uh we ate many many meals together my grandparents uh were both great cooks um, and you know your classic Sunday Sunday sauce dinner that yeah. kind of thing um, but also just you know birthdays you know Thanksgiving I mean my Thanksgiving was uh, 
at my aunt's house. It was formed in the traditional Italian way of antipasti, primi, secondi, dolci. So you have your antipasti, which in our house was massive platters of cold cuts and, you know, provolone and uh, gabagool and uh, prosciutto and, uh, and cheeses and olives and marinated mushrooms and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, sausage stuffed bread and, you know, bread with broccoli on the inside. And that was like the first course enough to feed an army. They would take that away. Lasagna was course number two um, and massive portions, meatballs, short rib, sausage in the sauce that would be taken away and then the whole turkey dinner just as big and beautiful as any you know as any you could imagine and that was taken away and then there was two sets of desserts you know um so uh was one italian and one american no, I, I mean the desserts the, the desserts you're gonna laugh there was jello and I wouldn't let Jello mold was jello it a Jello molds, mold with the like fruit inside? Different kinds, I colors, thought that was a Jewish thing. And okay. nuts. My family was a mix of like you know tradition and, and, and Italian American tradition, and also there's some old world stuff in there as well. And then like Betty Crocker and like you know um, sure. 50s yeah. like you know yeah. you know quick quick eating kinds of things. So um, so but it my was Jello and and then we had pies and cakes, etc. And afterwards, and the, like the the the, the, the Thanksgiving apple pie, apple pie pecan yeah, pie, yeah, pumpkin exactly. bat stuff, all okay. that stuff. But also other, I mean, chocolate mousse. My and my and my aunt still makes this. You know, my aunt and my mother still do the same thing to this day. Um, but my grandparents also owned a diner. Um, so uh, my grandfather was a um, working class guy, he was a truck driver, he was a mechanic, those kind of things. He made cheese when he was a young boy at a cheese factory. And then my grandparents opened a tiny diner outside of New Haven in their 50s, which is an undertaking that me in my 50s now, I cannot imagine opening or be the, like a new restaurant owner in my 50s. But they had this tiny little diner where my grandfather was a cook and my grandmother worked FOH, and those were the only employees um, toward the, the in their 50s and into 60s. Uh, my grandfather um, never retired. He had a job into his hundreds, and that was uh, you know how my family into was. his hundreds. Into his he hundreds. Worked. Yeah, he worked. He had like actual W two post 100. Unbelievable. Yeah, he was an amazing man. Um, anyway, so food was central to my to you know my. Uh, my childhood. But I, you know, I grew up in Connecticut. I went to an amazing private school where my stepfather was a teacher. And I, I was both like a, you know, musician in a band, but I really wanted to be a writer. I did the whole like, you know, Salinger, Faulkner, Hemingway, you know, those kind of fascinations when I was a 16 year old. And I just started writing constantly. I was a big journal keeper. And uh, I eventually went to, uh, I went to school at Brown in uh, Providence, and I got a degree in writing there. And Can I interrupt you for yeah. once, before we get too far from your teenage years? You know, the Italian-American upbringing you describe, yeah. you know, I spent almost 10 years living in the Carroll Gardens neighborhood mm -hmm. here in Brooklyn. I, I became, you know well. I started doing the Sunday sauce thing myself. Mm -hmm. I became fascinated with it. Um, I've co-authored with a number of Italian-Americans. Generally speaking, and please tell me if it was an exception, but this is a very uh, expressive uh, community, generally speaking. This is an unshy uh, community, generally speaking. Um, you know, a lot of writers, certainly this was the case for me, 
and you know, you 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 read books that are autobiographical in nature, if not literally autobiographical, and the protagonist that's kind of the stand-in for the the writer, right? If they write about their childhood, that that person is often feel is a little out of place. They often feel just a little out of sync with the world around them. How did you fit into the environment you just described as a kid? That is an amazing question. I feel like I did not, I was shy as a child um, and I, I don't know that I was super self-assured. I, you know, my, f- thinking back in, in that way, like my, um, my father, who you know lived in the same town as as me? I would see regularly. He was a he's like as I mentioned earlier, he was a charismatic guy. He, you know, he um, was a big gambler. He's a big sports guy. You know, he's taking bets, and you know, um, he had a you know a sports car growing up, and you know, um, he's a very different personality than me. Um, and I feel like there was a lot of I felt of some friction distance from that um, and maybe even a quietude. Like I was the one in the corner taking notes and I think maybe that's what you're alluding to. Well, yeah, and if people commented on that even. No, but I was the eldest in the family. So I think I had like a, you know, there's a privilege there. I got asked my sisters if I had any privilege as an eldest and they could take up hours of your podcast. Um, And maybe also as a boy. (laughs) Yeah, a boy, eldest. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, in terms of how I felt, um, it wasn't, I never felt like I was, you know, that being an Italian American was central to my upbringing until I was much older. And I started to ask like, what do, like as a writer, like, what do I have to say? Like, what, what do I know? You know, when they say like, write what you know, I mean, like, what do I know? And I was so, uh, you know, as a 16, 17, 18 year old, and then into college, when I was trying to express myself, I feel like I didn't have anything that's, I I was so, um, you know, lost for what I had to say, because I thought I needed to, you know, break molds, be strange. Like, um, you know, I I was into, uh, you know, pretty unusual writing in my, in my 20s. Um, and what do you, sorry, what do you mean by unusual? I just mean like the avant-garde, the Robert Coovers, the, you know, the, okay. the people who are Roland Barr, all the people who are like sort of breaking thick, you know, words up and, you know, reconnecting them in a, in a sort of, you know, postmodern, like avant-garde way. I, that, that was what I like gravitated to in some ways because I didn't, I felt maybe like I didn't have a, you know, a story. And it wasn't until, um, I got to college and the most, you know, sort of like my most like avant-garde edgy, you know, uh, teacher was like, you know, you still need to write what you know. And I started writing about, um, I wrote this story about um, a grandmother, at least, a, I mean, if they're grandmothers, but they're older women making pasta. And it sounds kind of trite, um, but it was magical. It was sort of magic realist and just strange and weird and twisted. And my, uh, my professor at the time loved this piece that I wrote and I all of a sudden realized that like there are these things in my family that I that I did find really like beautiful and fascinating like the like all like the the strange basements in Italian American homes with the with the you know the 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 big tables with the you know the old like terry cloth on them or the towels with the pasta drying there and like the um the 
sort of black magic stuff that my grandmother still did. Like, you know, I grew up in a family where if you had a headache, you would call your grandmother and ask her to do the eyes for you. And the eyes were um, this ritual that she would perform in order to rid you of the malocchio, the evil eye that you had that was causing the headache. So you would call my grandmother up, she'd pick up the phone, she'd be like, Jason, I'm like, oh, I got a headache. She's like, I'll do the eyes for you. Like, okay. And so she'd hang up and you know, she, you'd see her in the ki- this little tiny galley kitchen that she had. They, had this, they lived in the same house their, their whole lives. And it was a, a, you know, dropping olive oil into water and watching it disperse like tea leaves. And this is like something that you could learn from my grandmother, but only at midnight on Christmas Eve. That was the only time you were allowed to learn this. I mean, what is this thing that still exists in my family? And, you know, in the 1980s, while I was like, you know, watching Madonna on MTV, like the same thing was happening at the, at the same time. So I started getting fascinated by that. And whatever remnants of Neapolitan culture and uh, that were still in my family. Um, so those were, I mean, it was a very small piece that I could grab onto, but then I just like kind of grabbed hard. And that's when I started, I like I studied Italian. I, I, I lived there for a little while. Um, I tried to dig as deep as possible. And what I kept up coming up with was food, you know what I mean? Because that was like really what stood the test of, I mean, that's what stood the test of through generations is like, you know, traditions around food. Um, and so uh, I, I began writing about food mostly. So you, uh, at what point do you enter this writing program um, in the in, the in mid, Illinois? In Illinois, and we have to talk for a minute about about David Dave. Foster Wallace. Yeah. I mean, I can't, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's, um, a, it's a big name drop, but it's the biggest one. I mean, I mean, he was, he, he was amazing. Yeah. He taught, he was your, what was, do we call was, it? Teacher? Thesis advisor. Thesis advisor. That. Yeah. My teacher. I mean, for people who are listening to this, who don't keep up with, um, you know, the literary world, David Foster Wallace, who sadly committed suicide several years ago. I mean, for me, he's the guy. I've, I've, I have said to other writers, I can't believe I read David Foster Wallace two weeks from my deadline because now I can't write for at least two days. No, you won't be able to write again. Because no sentence seems good enough. Yeah. I mean, he was such an amazing yeah. writer. Yeah. What were your goals at that point in your life that you, you know, you'd been to college? So what were your goals in going into a writing program? And then how did you find yourself under the tutelage of, of this genius? I mean, the, the, the thing about the writing world, which, you know, it continues to be, you know, something that I think about is there were, there were a lot of gates to pass through. And, you know, I was lucky enough to pass through a couple of, a couple of these gates. The first was getting into the honors writing program at my university, which was super hard to do. They only had, there was 20 people in the program and many hundreds who wanted to be a part of that program. So many people wanted to be writers. Um, and it took me two years of trying to finally get into that program. And when I did, I met my first, um, like, um, you know, mentor teacher. Uh, her name was Eurydice. Um, she went by the single name, just like, you know, Madonna, who I just mentioned. Um, and she was the one that told me to go study with David. And David, that was before Infinite Jest was released. He was teaching um, in, at Illinois State University. Um, so I had been living in Bologna for, uh, for a while, and I got the news that I got into this graduate program in Illinois uh, when I lived in Italy. And so I came back, um, I bought my first car, I drove across the country to normal Illinois, uh, which was uh, you know, a much bigger culture shock than moving to Italy for the year, <laughs> I have to say. By the way, for that me. was not a, um, a, a, a cute 
jokey name. Oh, uh, it's just used. The town is actually called yeah. Normal Illinois. It is yeah. Normal Illinois. Yeah. Um, and it is a, a fitting name, um, in with all its irony intact. Um, and I, you know, I came there uh, super brash, probably uh, with a much inflated ego. You know, I went to this great Ivy League school. I was in, the, you know, I had. I was an honors student in creative writing. I got this recommendation. I got a ride at graduate school. And um, the, I mean, I shudder to think about how I was at that time. And uh, David certainly let me know, um, took me down quite a few notches. Um, and it took a long time to work my way back up and at least how I felt in his eyes. Um, so I mean that was good for me. I needed that lesson. Um, that was good. That wasn't. That wasn't. It was crushing. Hard. It was debilitating for three years, four years. It's a um, long time. It was a long time. I lasted. I mean, I I finished my um, studies there and then moved to Chicago. Um, uh, but I had never. I didn't finish my thesis for like almost two years, and and then went back to you know. Uh, to work with him on, on finishing it. And at that point, I think I had learned something that I, I needed to learn. And, um, you know, his main, most of the, of the sort of criticism was technical. And it was about, it was about the, I mean, I don't want to say the grammar, but it was about syntax and use of, of words. And, you know, he, he even said one time to me, he's like, I think you need to like, maybe read out loud when you're reading, because I feel like you're just not listening to what the words are saying in these books that you're reading because you're just not getting it. I mean, it was kind of tough. You know, like one time he also said, he's like, I'm going to take this sentence. I'm going to write it on the board. I was going to do this. I was going to take the sentence and write it on the board. But then I felt like it might come off as mean, but it's actually nice oh because you need to learn, you know, like that this isn't a good sentence. And I remember this one moment very clearly, and actually, like I, I got a chance to write something for a memorial service that they had at uh, Illinois State when he, mm. when he died, and I, I, and I talked to, about this in, in that piece. But there was this one moment when I was writing about, it was about food, and it was about wine on a table. And uh, someone took like a cold bottle of, of wine on the table and put it down, and I said, the sentence was clunky, and it talked about the wine, waiting for the wine to reach the temperature of the room. And he like circled the sentences like this is horribly clunky and like obtuse. Um, like you need to learn what word works for this. And it assumes the wine assumes the temperature of the room. That's the word that you should have used. And I remember being like, oh, shit, I don't know the word. And like, why didn't this word come to me? And like, you know, Dave Wallace knows the word. And I just like, do I not have the natural ability to like know the word? Um, and uh, it hurt, you know, and now um, I think about the word temper, which is a beautiful word, like when meat tempers or wine tempers, what it's doing is it's assuming the temperature of the room, right? Um, and it's a more beautiful word than assume, and I own that word now, and I feel like that is me like listening to David, but also just like taking the advice and then moving on. Making it your own, yes. absorbing it into yeah. who, you, who you are as a writer. Yeah. The, the notion of him, I mean, I never met the guy, 
because his stuff was so it, you just got swept up in it you know um the notion that there was even an intentional craft to it as opposed to something that just sprang out of you know his head I, is i mean it is, had like that mozartian like dictation from god quality it did it, right? he seemed yeah. touched by god yeah. but who knows how how much he I had to struggle to get that hard. right you know and i've had uh, a, an editor friend of mine, a woman named Karen Rinaldi, um, actually her husband, Joel Rose, uh, the two of them together kind of discovered and made Anthony Bourdain a working writer years ago. But I remember her once saying to me, like, and she listed a bunch of writers, and one of them was David Foster Wallace and, and Jonathan Franz. You know, mm-hmm. she named a couple and said, you don't understand how monastic these guys have to be to do what they do. Like, when they are deep into a book, like, they just, you don't see them, you don't yeah. hear from them, they don't st- st- check in with their friends, they, mm-hmm. and I just can only imagine, you know, what it took, but but also to get to that end result of, I mean, it's kind of like cooking, right? I think there's so many great analogies between cooking and writing, you know, and I think one of them is this notion of doing something that no matter how hard it was for you as the, as the maker looks almost inevitable or looks like it just kind of happened, you know, just seems like, you know, like a plate of food just looks like, yes, of course, that's what that pasta looks like. You know, that's how it was meant to look. And, you know, it just appeared like that. The thing that I think about a lot is I I love the beauty and like the simple transformations that happen. Like I talk about this a little bit in the book, like an omelet is obviously like one of those things that people like talk about as being a very chefy thing to make. And I and a good litmus I, test I, of I, someone's talent. Exactly yeah. right. I think it's beautiful the way that an egg can transform into this like you know, sort of like texturally complex object. Right. Same same for risotto. I bl- I love the way that risotto can become this creamy like suspension of like perfectly cooked grains without any additional material other than the technique and the stages in which the narrative so to speak the story that you put through it through um and uh you're dealing with like some really elemental ingredients here like you have stock rice wine butter you know pasta right that's it say stay with it you can make something really beautiful with those four ingredients Similarly, like a really beautiful sentence can be made of very simple ingredients just ordered in the right way. And like sometimes when uh, a sentence is beautiful, I'm just in shock by how simple it is, but how like completely transformative it is at the same time. That's what I get from like really powerful cooking. Um, and it's an ex- it's both like, you know, an express, you know, it's obviously ingredients first and it's about the sourcing, but it's the you know, you have to be in the right time and place to make something like this beautiful. And that's what happens with writing in the same way with food. Yeah. I mean, I think about the, you know, there's this phrase I use. It's not obviously not an original or good phrase. Uh, Mr. Wallace would have, you know, taken a crowbar to me, but you know, once in a while, someone will describe, uh, I always use it with Italian food. Did it bring a tear to your eye? That's what I say. Um, I don't want to name it. There's a restaurant I consider very overrated that does Italian food. And whenever a fellow food scribe talks about it, I go, have you ever had a dish there that brings a tear to your eye? Because I haven't. But the the things that I'm thinking about that would bring a tear to my eye, they're simple things. Mm-hmm. They're not show-offy things. Uh, th- those things may excite me in other ways. Um, 
but it's it's when someone does something like what you just said, where you, you, you're presented with a pasta, or you're presented with a, a risotto, or you're presented with um, just an, a very simple, beautiful salad. It just blows your mind. Yeah. You know, that, that I remember years ago, I was at dinner with uh, Gavin Kazin, mm-hmm. who used to be in New York, now in Minneapolis. And I was talking about Jonathan Waxman's food at Barbudo and how much I liked it. Yeah. And there was a couple next to us who I guess had been eavesdropping on our entire conversation. And they were getting ready to leave. They'd paid their check. And, and um, this woman says to me, excuse me, I couldn't help but overhear you, know, you, you talking about Barbudo. What, why do you, what do you think is so special about it? I said, have you been there? And she just said, yeah. I said, okay, well, I just ate there the other day. I had a salad. It was shaved asparagus, walnuts, pecorino, lemon juice, olive oil, salt, pepper. I said, why don't you go home and try to make a salad with those six things or whatever, however many it was. I said, I guarantee you, your plate is going to look like something that's being cleared off the table, not something that's about to go down on the table. Mm -hmm. Right. And I remember telling Jonathan that story and he, you know, he really appreciated that comment, but it's true. Simple cooking to me is so hard, just like simple writing, you know? I remember Hemingway writing once about, you know, being willing to sit in a cafe all day in Paris to write one true, the word he, you talk about word choice, one true sentence, mm-hmm. you know? And his writing was so stripped down. I mean, there, there's also a danger in this, right? That you get to this place where you're expecting something elemental, you know, um, perfect to emerge. And that's a real like toxic place to live in. And it, for a long period of time, right? Especially if you're, you know, a, as you've done many times writing like book length projects or doing some kind of something that takes a lot of effort over time. And when I think about the restaurant and it being, you know, I, my restaurant is 23 years old and thinking about restaurants as businesses and being sustainable and, you know, producing livelihoods for people. If you're expecting something pure and elemental to come easily, regularly, you'll be often disappointed and depressed in life. And that's also like, it's very like, it could be a very like toxic endeavor to like try for that all the time. You do have to recognize that there's a lot of, um, you know, fake it till you make it. There's a lot of forced smiles. There's a lot of like sort of mistakes that come in anticipation of, of something more expressive and pure that happens sometimes by accident, right? And that can happen in cooking and in writing. It can happen in your personal lives, you know, like, but showing up and like really trying to make something um, special uh, on, a, you know, daily and then having it happen just out of happenstance is like a really beautiful thing. And, uh, and that's, I mean, I, I, lo- I just like to, to like recognize that like so often, like when I was, you know, when I was trying to be an artist or a writer, even when I was younger and I was a kid and I wanted to be like a certain type of person in the world, like looking inside yourself and like, do I have this like elemental thing that's just gonna come out of me? Like what you expect, like someone who's as amazing as David Wallace is, or, you know, a chef like Jonathan Waxman, you're like, if you compare yourself to that, you might find a lot of um, disappointment and sadness. And like, it's important to recognize that like, I think we talked about this earlier. I mean, I think, I think someone, there's a lot more work that went into, you know, Jonathan's like, you know, career and work 
and David Wallace's and like so many of the people that from the expression seems so like easy and elemental and pure, but the work that it took to get there might've been really messy and complicated, right? Oh yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, one of my, fi- people talk about, you know, do, should one go to cooking school, right? Or does one need to go to cooking school? Oh. And, and one of, would you say no? No, I don't <laughs> think so. I mean, uh, forgive me, I'd love to be invited to go to cooking school. That would be a, an amazing thing. But my experience is that you can learn elsewhere. No, but what I was gonna say is if you look at both their foods, right? Uh, between Thomas Keller and Jonathan Waxman, the one who went to cooking school is Jonathan Waxman. You know, like that is mm-hmm. mind-blowing to me to this day. One thing that's great about cooking school, especially in New York, and maybe you can comment on this, is that there are a lot of communities that get built around the graduating classes in, at the CIA and other cooking schools that are like people meeting each other and then collaborating outside of cooking school later on. That's been the case in, in Chicago as well, like between chefs that I've known that have come up together in cooking school and then they've found their friendships. And so that has provided a really valuable community you know, and that's a powerful tool. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I told, I've meant, I don't think I've mentioned it on the show, but I'm about to be teaching at a prominent cooking school. So I feel like I have to, um, what, recuse Rep. myself. Yeah, I have to recuse myself yeah. from, from opining. Yeah. Um, I think it depends on the person is, is generally what I believe. And I, I don't, I don't Same think for it's English pro- departments. Uh, well, you know, yeah. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I benefited greatly from not, writing fiction or anything like that in college, but just from having some really good professors work my writing over, mm-hmm. changed my life, probably. 24 years is a long time for a restaurant. It is. Um, how do you keep it fresh? Let's, let's put aside the customers, right? For yourself. I mean, it's, it's, it's a one, first of all, it's this going to the same place every day, and then it's being in that place. Um, I mean, I know the menu is ever-changing. Um, is that the thing that kind of allows you to still be excited by it and, and enjoy it as much as you clearly do? Uh, are there other things that may not be apparent to anyone other than yourself? And it's, maybe it's your wife? Not, I mean, I'm gonna be honest, it's not the food. And I know that it was gonna probably be surprising to a lot of people. And like, I, you know, the food develops and I work with chefs closely like we have a team obviously you mm-hmm. know I'm, i mean we sometimes serve um seven eight hundred nine hundred people in a day it's not me doing all the cooking um so i what i love is being a teacher to the people who are in the restaurant whether they're front of the house or back of the house and giving perspective and then i love listening to the new perspectives and I find that incredibly invigorating when you talk to someone and show them a way of doing something or a way of thinking about a product or how to move in a space or maybe how to describe something in a way that is you know, unique or exciting um, and, or how to have empathy for um, you know, your fellow workers. Like creating empathy in the space is like a big part of my, is a big part of my job. Um, creating understanding, giving, create, you know, helpful feedback and, uh, and listening to feedback when it comes to us and then deciding what to do about it. I mean, that's the kind of work that I find like incredibly uh, grounding and uh, like wind in the sails that keeps it moving. Um, it, it's not, you know, I, 
I think the actual, the physical act of cooking is, is, I mean, I love cooking and I, you know, I like to cook at home when I have the opportunity and I love eating out. I mean, we ate some great places in New York the last two days. I mean, it's exciting to be around food and to understand how uh, it can be done. But when I see, um, when I talk to someone about the way they're rendering duck skin, or when I talk to someone about how to pause before moving or how to move quickly without it, you know, being dangerous or, you know, uh, uh, or scary in a kitchen. I like those kinds of things. Um, how to, how to organize a station, how not to get lost. Our, I mean, our, we do all verbal calls. So I, and I expedite very frequently. It's really hard for someone who is in a busy kitchen to take over a station and hear, you know, you know, fire six duck and three, you know, uh, fish and hold you know these two back and like this one has no knots and that one is sauce on the side and this one as well and like keep that all in their head and like talk them through it and like help them not be stressed in that time um that's stuff that's like that lives with the young people who go through the kitchens forever i mean whether they even end up in food like being through that process and understanding like how to organize, how to remain calm, how to prioritize, and then how to bring touch and like elegance to your um, to your work, um, that can be translated to a million other roles and jobs in life. I think that stuff's fascinating, and I think the the you know the part that the place where empathy and love and care enter into the world of hospitality is also like really like like to me it's like deeply um keeps me afloat as well i mean if that's the wind then the, the you know the water underneath is definitely the like the the need people have to be connected and taken care of in a restaurant like yeah. that can, continues despite the pandemic despite all the like you know the troubles between people and you know like the, the political atmosphere that you mentioned earlier and like you know there's the suspicion through you know with with which people come to each other today. I mean, people still need love and care and kindness and they need it more than ever. And they come looking for it despite the walls they put up. Um, I think that that part of it is, is still deeply buoyant for me and like my life. Well, to that point and bringing it back to the book, uh, you know, you have, and we were talking before we started rolling tape, right? That you, uh, one of the reasons you wanted to write the book was to lay down the story of the restaurant, which is the first thing in the book. That's not unusual, but I mean... Mine's a little long, huh? Well, no. What <laughs> I was going to say is I didn't know how long it was, and I'm not worried about you not knowing that this is a compliment. I did not realize how long it was until you told me how long it was today. Um, I was reading off a PDF, so physically I, I didn't see the pages, you know, piling up on the left side of the of the physical book. I was just pile they did. I was just clicking through. It pulled me right along, and then you told me today that that introduction is ten thousand words. Yeah, it might be I, nine, but it's up there. Yeah. I would have guessed five. Yeah, you know, maybe. I mean, it to me it read in a very breezy way, um, and. Um, but then you have a whole thing of, you have a whole kind of meditation on, on hospitality and what people want from a restaurant and what you, what the, what you all are charged with providing to them. And, um, you know, there's a lot more focus, I think, on appreciation of hospitality over the last, I don't know, 20 years, you know, there was the, the Danny Meyer book, I think, Setting the Table, you quote it mm -hmm. um, in, that, in that section, is 
was kind of a, a milestone. And obviously now we have things like the welcome conference, which are not chef conferences. They're essentially front of house. I'm actually writing my speech for the welcome conference right now. Oh, are you part of the lineup in Chicago? In Chicago yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. That said, I, I do still sort of see those two uh, spheres as separate in a lot of ways. It was striking to me to have a chef, even a chef owner, give that much real estate that prominently to, the, to, to examining hospitality. I think that leaders of kitchens need to be leaders of hospi- in hospitality first and foremost. Like to be able to build a, a team of people that care for each other, they care for the products, they care for they care for the um, the work that you know you've you've all put into um, to the restaurant. You need to care, um, and you need to love. I mean, I I, th- I use that word like un, um, I, I don't apologize for that word. Like in the pandemic, we we thought carefully about some of the ways that um, the notions of restaurant families was. Um, and restaurants being a family um, could be used in manipulative and like uh, in toxic ways. Um, and I, you know, thought deeply about that because I did, you know, I had employees that have been there for the whole time, 23 years. I consider them, you know, to be very, very close people in my lives. And, you know, at first I kind of took, you know, umbrage at this oh no that's kind of this is our family but like you know let's be, it is a business and like these are people who work for us and um and it's there's a, a part of the relationship that's transactional of course um and i i can i held both of those things in my hands at the same time like the notion of restaurants as a family and the notions that restaurants being a family could be you know again manipulative or it, it could take agency away from the employees and I thought about like how can I hold on to these things in a way that um, that allowed me to like express care and and um, to take care of people, but also recognize that they're you know they're workers in an, in a capitalist society you know, so I, I, that section of the book really talks a lot about how you know hospitality and taking care is work and it's emotional labor that both I need to do for my employees and employees need to do for each other and also for our guests. And it's not, it's, it's labor that is, um, is valuable, honorable, and needs practice, you know, and it needs work. And, um, and it needs the resources to be able to do that work. So I believe that that's the province of chefs as much as it is restaurant owners or maitre d's or GMs or whatever you want to say about the front of the house. Yeah, and I hope I was clear. I, I wasn't uh, disputing it at all. It just, no, I know. It just struck me. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not a usual thing to me. Maybe it will be in the future. So one last thing about the book you you date stamp all the recipes. Mm-hmm. Big. This is the that's the biggest smile you've had this whole yeah. conversation. Uh, <laughs> Uh, to me, it was almost kind of an obvious throwaway question, but I did want to ask you about it. Uh, why did you elect to do that? And um, well, let's just just what's well, we the, do that what's at the, the why of that? I mean, you know, in the restaurant, it's month, day, year in the book because it's a book that's published by Fiden, which is, uh, Fiden publishes books all over the world. That they don't all use the same sort of pattern of date keeping. We elected to just to do month and year in the book. Um, but I started with the idea that um, I'm not writing about, I mean, writing about seasonal cooking, 
the season for me is the moment, the day. And so like when I talk about a panzanella with the, the, the beets and the strawberries that's in the book, like I talk about my father-in-law in this moment. Or when I talk about um, a, we have a, a, a dish in there that's like, it's, it's cantaloupe and has ricotta salada and some like, you know, a lot of savory uh, notes on top of the, uh, of top of the melon. I talk about this one particular day when my daughter thought that I created prosciutto and melon as a combination and was surprised to learn that it came before me. Um, and it's a funny little story, but I like it's, that's how I see the food. I see it as like specific moments in time when you're presented with these ingredients, but you're also presented with your life and the people in your life. And that in that exact moment, it's not about, you know, I don't want it to be timeless. I want it to be like super pointed in a moment of creation and uh, and really like come down to like even um, a conversation or a situation with a, you know, a, a chance encounter with a person. So that when you're, you know, when you're looking at, at the food that you make in your, in your life and you eat, like you realize that like, okay, this is just this one moment. It's never, this is never gonna happen again, you know? Um, and that's why the days we've always stamped the menus um, with a banker's stamp, which is, I mean, we've been doing it for a really long time and you see that at restaurants everywhere now, um, which I love. Um, but for me, it, it, it is about, like, I was always a big journal keeper. It's like a journal. It's a day, and this is what happened on that day. And that is our show for today. My great thanks again to Jason Hamill for joining us. If you are in Chicago or find yourself visiting, I recommend Lula Cafe. It's a wonderful restaurant. Uh, It'll put you in a good mood, and you'll leave with a full and happy belly. And I also recommend, of course... Uh, as you could tell from the interview, I found it to be terrific. The Lula Cafe cookbook, whether for yourself and or someone or some people, you may be looking to find the right cookbook for as a holiday gift. Our thanks again to Mies, the recipe operating system for culinary professionals. For their support, try out their free basic version today by visiting GET. M-E-E-Z.com forward slash Andrew. And a final reminder again to please check out my book, The Dish. If you like this show, you will like this book. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you would like to support us, we ask that you do that by telling a friend, posting about the show on social media, and or rating or especially reviewing us at Apple Podcast. Our thanks to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram. Our handle there is at Chef Podcast and my personal handle where you can follow my dining, writing, and personal adventures is Tokeland Andrew. That's T-O-Q-U-E-L-A-N-D. Andrew, those are both on Instagram. Thank you very much for listening. And we will be back very soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs.